You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. The first edition of the Tour de France fam will start in Paris as the men's Tour de France comes to a close. And although there have been some pretenders to the crown, this is the first Tour de France for women since the original Tour Féminin, which ran in the 1980s. Uh, lots of people perhaps mistakenly think that this is the first Tour de France for women riders, but the Tour Féminin, which ran from 1984 to 1989, uh, ran at the same time as the Tour de France. And it also provided the inspiration for our women's show, the Cycling Podcast Feminine, when Richard Moore and I were talking about how to establish the show and trying to come up with a name, uh, Richard just said, why don't we call it the Cycling Podcast Feminine? And it just immediately felt like the right idea. Uh, but Lizzie, Lizzie Banks, of course, uh, what do you know about the Tour Feminine, the original race in the 1980s? So the original race was very different from the kind of race that we're going to see the, see today, either in the Tour de France Femme or in the men's Tour de France. It was 18 stages over 21 days. And the support was nothing like what you see today with catering trucks and chefs. These riders barely even had a DS. Some didn't have a, have a, some didn't have a mechanic until halfway through the race. And even 10 years later at the Tour de Lode, um, it was the same for riders then. So things have changed so much with equipment, with parkour, um, with support out on the road. Uh, and so it's going to be a very, very different race and a very, very different depth of field that we see in the Tour de France Femme starting again this year to what we saw in 1984. I mean, ASO, the organisers of the Tour de France, get a lot of criticism for... Um, the speed at which they have come to develop a Tour de France for women riders, and rightly so, but the predecessors in the organisation were trailblazers in a sense. In 1984, um, you know, it's not like there was a clamour for a women's edition of the Tour de France. It was an event that was um, put on almost as a curtain raiser to the men's race because the women's stages took place over the fl closing kilometres of the men's race on the same day. So the crowds on the roadside would see the women's race come by and then the publicity caravan and then um, the men's race later on. Um, the race was brought to a close in 1989. That was the final edition. Um, the new race director, Jean-Marie Leblanc, uh, cited the economic difficulties of organising the race, but the Tour de France was still quite proprietorial over the name, the Tour de France. Understandably so, I guess, but it did mean that in name there couldn't be a women's edition of the Tour de France either. There were other races in France. The Tour de Lourdes was a prestigious race for women. The uh, Tour Cycliste Feminine was about as close in naming terms as uh, another event got to calling itself the Tour de France and that evolved into the Grand Boucle which was won by both Nicole Cook and Emma Pooley for Britain before the final edition in 2009 and then of course came and very famously described by Emily, Emma Pooley as more of a Putty Boucle than a Grand Boucle because it was only four stages in the edition that she It won. was yeah that's right it, it was it was struggling economically as well I mean when it was uh, at its peak it was a couple of weeks long, but um, again, the difficulty, I guess, of, of sponsorship and uh, organising the race meant that it did wither on the vine somewhat. And then came La Course, you know, not a Tour de France in any sense, a, a one-day race, a criterium on the Champs-Élysées. It did branch out a little bit uh, for a couple of editions, um, but not really an event that was worthy of the name. But here we are on the eve of the Tour de France fam, a week-long race from Paris to La Planche de Belfi. And for this episode of Kilometre Zero, we're going to go right back to 1984 and speak to the rider who won the first edition of the Tour Feminin, an American rider called Marianne Martin. And I'm really keen to get your thoughts, Lizzie, on what Marianne says about her experience in 84. So let's listen to Marianne Martin. I called her at her home in Colorado a couple of weeks ago. <music> Ja, 
enfin, cette année, il y avait une grande première, le Tour de France féminin. Il s'est terminé lui aussi aujourd'hui, à Paris. Première lauréate, l'américaine Marianne Martin, un nom bien français, mais elle est pourtant américaine. Elle s'était distinguée en montagne. Elle a réussi à vaincre les Hollandaises plus fortes collectivement. Marianne Martin retenait son nom, cette américaine du Michigan, heureuse dans les bras de son père, célèbre aussi sous la haie des photographes, mais elle devra apprendre le français. Christian! Oui. Je ne parle pas anglais, je ne Marianne. Merci beaucoup pour votre temps. Où are you speaking from this morning? In Boulder, at my home. And, uh, well, tell me a bit about what you do these days, because you're a photographer, right? I'm a photographer, yes. Things slowed down with COVID, but I'm still doing some work and having a little bit more free time and racing my horse and keeping fit. Wow, racing horses these days. Yes, uh, we do endurance racing, 50 miles. If this is a daft question, I'm sorry, are you the, are you the jockey or are you the, the, the horse owner or, or what's your involvement? No, I ride him, wow. and so we do 25-50, or I haven't done 100 miles, but he's a good 50-mile racer, and we're leaving on Thursday for five days of racing down in Colorado. Wow, that, so the, the, the racing bug has never really left you, but you get the horse to do the work these days. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so just tell me briefly a bit about the photography, because... Um, that interests me as well. I mean, was that something that you were into, um, you know, before your cycling career, or is that something that came later on? No, I I have been in, interested in photography since growing up. My dad was into photography, so it was something that we did together, which was fun. And then when I was graduating college, he was going to give me some money, and I said, great, Dad, because I want to buy a racing bike. So he bought me a camera. <laughs> I took out a loan for the racing bike, but then, so I did photography just a bit, but couldn't afford the time or the money to do both. And then when I quit racing, I was so far in debt, I couldn't do photography then. And so it was years later until I, I was deciding what to do with my life and did a photography show and my business just took right off. So... It's, it's been a really good run, and I've loved it. And what kind of I photography? Mostly, yeah, go on. Sorry, what kind of photography? I do anything with people, um, a bit of animals, but my skill is in helping people look great uh, in a photo. And I do weddings, family portraits, business portraits, and, um, you know, just anything with people. That's what I love. Well, yeah, that really intrigues me, that portrait photography. I know a few portrait photographers, and you've really got to strike up a rapport with people very quickly, haven't you? Right. It's not about pushing the button. It's about connecting with the people. Yeah, and that, is that, the, that what appeals to you, kind of that, uh, you know, establishing that rapport with people quickly? Right, right. And, and also, you know, of course, then the technical part, like it's about light. But I find that photographers that are so caught up in the technicality of it, they can't connect with the people. So it's missing the soul. I mean, that's quite interesting because, you know, cycling is quite a solitary pursuit, really, isn't it? Well, I mean, that, that's, what was it about cycling that made you want to ask your dad for a race bike? And where did the bug for cycling come from? So when I was in college, I guess, I, I used to run and I hurt my back skiing. So I picked up a bike and just, you know, used to just ride for fun. And I met some of the guys in one of the bike shops and they invited me to go riding with them. And then they said, Oh, you're pretty strong. You should do a race. So I did a race and I did really well. And, and, you know, people at the race, came and said oh you should join our club and parties and barbecue and I thought oh that sounds like fun so I, I actually didn't wasn't as excited about the racing as I was about the parties and the barbecue but then <laughs> the encouragement you know I had people to ride with and was encouraged to race and so it actually took a little while to get the actual racing bug but I've always been really into fitness 
and cycling is a great way towards fitness. So what kind of what kind of time are we talking about here? What year would we be talking that you first got into cycling? That was probably maybe nineteen eighty one. What was the kind of the cycling landscape for women like then? Because uh, very different to how it is now, I'm imagining. Very different, yes. And it was very grassroots at the point at then. Uh, there wasn't really any coaching per se. I mean, I ended up finding someone that taught me about training and. Um, you know, at, at that level, certainly there, you know, there might have been somebody that kind of helped the team, but he was probably just a cyclist and not really knowing uh, a specialty about training or racing. And I was very fortunate after, you know, my second year or so to meet somebody, Andy Pruitt, that taught me about training and about resting and about you know, more about the fitness part of it, not the strategic part of cycling. But that helped a substantial amount. And then I also met one of the national coaches that lived in Boulder. And he taught me both about speed work and about visualization. And between those two, I took their words very seriously. And to me, training became a science. And I was completely focused at that point but in terms of the events that were available for you to race i mean there wasn't uh, a great deal on the horizon i guess at that time well there wasn't um let me think about that because locally there was a race almost every weekend it was just a little race i mean compared to the national races and stuff but it was enough to give you adrenaline and get you fit and get you loving the sport. And yes, it was an individual sport, but there was the group together at the race, whether it was your teammates or people in general. And so it did supply that social aspect that I really enjoyed. But I also liked that, I mean, I was never good at ball sports. So that kind of took team sports out of the running for me. I never experienced that. But this let me focus on my fitness and do the best that I could and then connect with people separately. So it's not like in my sport I was depending on somebody else to do well. It was all on me. But it kind of gave you a little bit of both. And I suppose this was... Uh, you know, it's becoming a really important time because in 1984, if we can sort of fast forward a little bit to that year, it was a really significant year, wasn't it? Because it was the first year that there was a, a road race for women at the Olympic Games and the Tour Feminin came along. And I wondered, when did you first hear that there was going to be a Tour Feminin? And at that stage, what did you know about the Tour de France itself? Well, I as I got into cycling, I did learn about the Tour de France. And you know, to answer your question previously, more on the national scene, there were actually quite a few races on the national scene. And to get on the national team, you had to do these different races around the country to get points. And I feel like in the 80s, you know, there might not have been the money and the science behind cycling that there is now, but we had a lot of opportunities. There was the Tour of Texas, the South Series, the Orida race, there were a lot of races to participate in. And so I raced around the country and got a place on the national team. So when I was on the national team, that is when I heard that there was going to be a Tour de France for women, and that is all I wanted to do then. I didn't care about Olympics, Worlds, anything. I only wanted to do the Tour de France. Why was that? Because, uh, you know, for American sports people, perhaps the Olympics and World Championships maybe resonates a little bit more in the general sporting world, I mean, you know, different in cycling. But what was it about the Tour Feminin, the Tour de France that really resonated? Well, I loved Europe. The Tour de France has a 
a mystique that, like no other. To me, that was the pinnacle. Just because it had been going on for so long, it was so revered. And maybe, too, because it's a whole month of racing. It's not one day where, you know, you have a flat or you skip a gear or whatever takes you out. This is going to hold. You have to be good day after day after day. So it's really going to show who's got the strength as opposed to who, you know, might have gotten lucky about this or that. Not to discredit the world or the Olympics by any means, but to race for a whole month is, that's what caught me. So as you were part of the U.S. national team, were you pretty confident that you would get a place uh, in the Tour de France lineup? I mean, how did it work? Was it a U.S. national team that was selected to, to go and take part? Is that how it worked? No. Uh, and, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know the science behind how they chose the team. They really, the French didn't think we would finish, for one thing. And I think even the Americans didn't really know what to expect because there hadn't been any races for women that long. So the team was probably selected on endurance as much as skill. And I was the last one chosen for the team. And I had not been riding well that year. I had trouble with anemia and stuff. So I was just coming into fitness, and I could feel it. I knew that I was turning a corner. You know, it's just that deep gut, like, oh, God, I've got this. I know I can do this. And so I, with the encouragement of a cycling friend of mine, drove down to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs and talked to Eddie B., the coach, and begged him to give me that spot on the team, and, and he did. Eddie B., of course, famous for being Greg LeMond's coach, I think, at, um, uh, if not at that time, certainly at one time. Yes, yeah, he, he was the coach for, for years, and I actually don't know how many years, but he pretty much ran the U.S. cycling for a long time. And there wasn't a coach for women at the time. So Eddie B. coached both the men and the women. So that was another thing that was very different about women's racing back then we were sort of secondary we were sort of okay i'll coach the men and okay women you kind of do this i didn't know any different so it didn't feel less than great to me but i was just so happy to be on the national team and then when i was selected for the tour and it was only maybe two weeks or less before the tour started that I was chosen for the team. Wow. Last in the door and then go and win the thing. That's uh, pretty impressive. Um, what do you remember about <laughs> your teammates and, uh, and the director of Sportif? Uh, who, who were they and, and what were they all like? Uh, the teammates uh, were women that I hadn't met before, but they were all great. Uh, there was a mixture of climbers, Patty Peoples was a triathlete. She came, so he knew that she had the strength, the endurance to put, you know, to stay on. And and so it was a good mix of girls. We didn't have a coach. We, we had a director sportive that was assigned to us from somewhere in France. He, he didn't speak English. He didn't, you know, I don't think he knew much about cycling. So he... I, I don't know what his role was, but we, we sort of got around from different ways as, as far as, like, the, I befriended a guy that drove the motorcycle for the women's team, and he interpreted things for us because everything was in French, and we didn't know how to speak French, and our director sportive didn't speak English, so it was it was a bit funny that way. We didn't have a mechanic, so we didn't have any good gears uh we the the biggest gear we had was a 19 until halfway through the race and uh, you know it it was definitely less than professionally perfect but I, i didn't care i mean i was just so excited to be there it was funny the way our director didn't speak english and really couldn't communicate with us um 
you know, we just kind of rolled with everything. We had, we didn't have high expectations like I think people have now. When I look at the pictures, the one thing that leaps out, obviously you're in the Stars and Stripes jersey, but the, the wording is in French, Etat uni, rather than um, United States or USA, which <laughs> maybe that's a clue as to where the sports director came from. Right, see, stuff like that. And um, also we had uh, the, the guy that gave us the bicycles, his name was on our jerseys, but as as amateurs, we weren't allowed to do that, so they just put tape across our jerseys. I mean, you know, stuff like that. You know, there were some amusing things about it, and instead of letting us, instead of letting that stress us, we just, you know, accepted it and and just rolled with it, and that was that was part of the adventure. I mean, you said the biggest gear you had until midway through the race was a 19. I mean, how did how did that change? I mean, what, did somebody just suddenly turn up with, with some, some different gearing and, and a mechanic to, to change the bikes over? Or, you know, how did that work? Yeah. So Betsy King was on our team, and she had been living in France. So she contacted somebody that came to be a mechanic for us about halfway through. And he was fabulous. I wish I remembered his name, but, oh, my gosh. And he didn't speak English either. But he communicated with us, if you know what I mean. You know, he, he communicated with us, and he, w- he was a marvelous mechanic, and he was so supportive. And somehow he got equipment, or somebody got equipment. And so from that point on, he would clean our bikes every night, make sure they were tuned, and, you know, make sure everything was good, whereas... You know, previous to that, we didn't have anything like that after a race. We would just do our own thing. And so that made a huge difference in the whole functioning of the team. Unfortunately, Betsy King was also supposed to be the winner. So we were technically supposed to be working for her, but she was not the strongest. So I wanted to win the polka dot jersey because my friend Steve Tilfer that was the one that encouraged me to drive down to the, the Olympic Training Center and talk to Eddie. I had been riding with him, and, you know, again, I wasn't, very, I wasn't riding well that spring because of my anemia. So Steve used to joke about, you know, that I couldn't climb hills, whereas that was my strength. But, so I was... That, I was determined to win the polka dot jersey to show Steve that, see, I am a climber. You know, kind of a funny thing. But in order to win the first mountain cream, I had a Betsy. I had to do. I had. I knew I had to beat her by a lot, so that I wasn't chastised for you know squeaking her out of it. So I just went ahead, and that, again, that was my strength. I was very comfortable with it. When I got to the top, to the preem, I was 10 minutes ahead of the pack. And I thought, oh, I, I better slow down. I can't do the next 50 kilometers by myself. And then I thought, well, I'll just keep going, and then a, a breakaway group will catch me, and then we can go together. But nobody ever caught me. So that's when I started thinking, oh, my gosh, um, I wonder if I could win this. You are listening to Kilometer Zero by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. I think that was the stage into Grenoble, wasn't it? Stage, uh, stage 12, I think, was the, the first... Um, was the first of the ones that you won, wasn't it? Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, prior to that, uh, well, let's just d- explain how the race panned out because it was 18 stages, as you said, in 22 days. And roughly speaking, it was between sort of 60 and 80 kilometres um, of the same race course that the Tour de France was doing, wasn't it? G- generally, was it the final sort of 60 to 80 kilometres? Is that, have I understood that yeah. right? Yeah. Yep, we had the same finish line as the men. So we had huge crowds because the roads had been closed off. 
you know, it, so if you wanted to watch the men's race, you you had to be there to watch the women's race too. And I mean, the Dutch team were formidable. I think they won every stage until you won your stage. Is that right? Uh, maybe I th- no. I think Kellyanne Way won a stage, didn't she, for Canada um, at some point? That's also, right. yeah. Um, uh, but. I mean, they were formidable. And um, was it noticeable when you were racing that that they were a level above, or was it just because they were so strong in those kind of sprints type stages, particularly? Well, both both that and that they were a very strong team. I, I loved racing with the European women because they were teammates. They did work as a team, and it was really fun to see how they worked together. Because, again, we didn't really have coaching, so we never really learned how to work together as a team, and we weren't designed that way. But, yes, the Dutch riders were formidable, and and so they were winning. But they weren't climbers. So when we got to the mountains, that's when I took off. So you took off on the stage to Grenoble, then did a good time trial, and then won again at La Plagne, which obviously a very difficult climb, and, and you gained a, another big chunk of time there. So um, you 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 more than uh, you more than did enough to justify um, you know going on the going on the attack and not getting in trouble with with uh, Betsy or any of the you know the other team uh, tactics that might have been the initial plan. I mean, there was dissension in the team. I mean, even though I won by a lot, there was still dissension in the team. And I actually got third in the first race. And I don't even remember how that happened. But that started the whole thing of, oh, you can't do this. And, you know, there was... Women are like that in sports. There was some arguing within the team, and it was a little bit divided. So at that point... Yes, it was clear that I was going to be the team leader, but it's not as though we were working as a team at that point. Did the yellow jersey sort of unify things at all or make it simpler in that respect? Unfortunately, no, it didn't. But like in one race, I did I did flatter. I did have something, and Yolanda Garrell came back, and she was the sprinter on our team, but she was a strong rider. And so she came back and she motored me back up to the pack, which, you know, was amazing because I probably would have lost the yellow jersey at that point. And I don't remember what stage that was. And then, like, for the climbing races, like for the day of La Plana, the Dutch riders kept sending somebody off the front just constantly. And Patty people would chase them down. And, I mean... She wasn't even a, a cyclist, but she was trying as hard as she could to kind of keep them at bay. And then we got to the climb, and I did take off, but I was quite tired from all the chasing. And I remember at one point looking up ahead at the mountain, and you could see for miles and miles and miles this road twisting up this mountain, and it lined with people, which was cool. But I remember looking at that and thinking, there's no way. There's no way I can do that. I'm so tired right now. And and that's one of the things about cycling and about sports is you dig deep and it's there. You just have to trust that and you just have to dig deep. And it's amazing what our bodies can do when we ask them. That was a tough day for me. I mean, you mentioned the the crowds because, of course, the the crowds were out to watch the the Tour de France. I mean, in in your um, from your memories, I mean, what was the reaction from the the public and the press, and um, you know, any any of the riders from um, the men's Tour de France? I mean, Greg LeMond, I think, was making his debut in the Tour de France, wasn't he? So, the, um, you know, there was a, a a big story there for American cycling as well. That's right, which I didn't know about until the last day. We, um, well, one day during, I don't even remember what day it was. I wasn't in the yellow jersey yet, but the top three women were invited to the dinner with the men's team. It was after dinner, but we were invited over to the men's team. And I was sitting with Vincent Barteau, and uh, L'Enfignon was, getting interviewed by somebody I don't know and 
Bartow was in the yellow jersey then, and he pointed at Fignon and said, he's going to win. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to win. I, I didn't have the nerve to say that, but I remember that was the first time I consciously remember thinking, I'm going to win. And, and that was a kind of a turning point for me because I think until you, until you can visualize yourself doing something, you can't do it. And that's when I started thinking, oh my gosh, I, I could win this thing because I didn't enter it to win. I didn't even know if I would finish when I entered it. So that was, gave us a little insight into the, what the men were doing, that we were very separate. So I didn't know much about the men's race except for that. What about the, re- the reaction to your race? I mean, I, I, I've read um, the chapter that Richard wrote for the Cycling Anthology a few years ago, and, and I suppose there was a kind of a, a sense of the, the, the curiosity um, because obviously there hadn't been a, 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 a women's Tour de France. I mean, I know there'd been a race in the 50s um, and there had been um, international races, but this was a, an, another level. I mean, something on... Um, over that length of time, for one thing. I mean, 18 stages in, in 22 days, for one thing. That's right. Like I said, the French didn't think we would finish. And I don't think the men, I mean, I don't think the coaches knew what to expect because the women had never raced that long. Yeah, I was going to ask about the style of racing. Was it what you were used to or was it something completely different? I mean, you mentioned the Dutch there firing riders off up the road and uh, obviously they would have been very aggressive in trying to keep things together for sprints on, on particular days. But what was the style of racing like? It was fabulous. I, I completely loved racing in Europe. It was so much uh, more exciting than racing in the States. And, and I'm sure that's completely different now because they, you know, there's more teams and organization and training, but because we didn't have a coach that really taught us about teamwork, although maybe certain teams did, but in general, so especially at this race, we weren't working as a team and I hadn't had experiences that, but to watch the Dutch riders and the Canadian riders and, you know, the different teams working as a team, it, it was it was very exciting. And I mean, you got to see a lot of France, didn't you? Because, of course, although the stages weren't as long, you were covering pretty much the same amount of ground. <laughs> well, so, I, except for La Plagne, I don't remember seeing anything. So, on the last day, we went by the Eiffel Tower. And after the race, somebody was talking about the Eiffel Tower, and I said, oh. And I didn't even know we went by the Eiffel Tower because I'm so focused on every little thing around me, who's doing what, you know, where the women are, where this person is in the pack, everything. I didn't notice any of the scenery. (laughs) I think your dad flew over to see you in... um in Paris when the race arrived on the Champs-Élysées. Is that, is that right? I mean, he, he, must have, he must have thought perhaps I, I should have bought you the bike instead of the camera maybe at that point. <laughs> uh, he did. He surprised me. And um, so a, a couple of days before the finish, I was trying to get a hold of him to say, hey, you can watch it on TV. It's going to be on TV. And I couldn't reach him. And I called my sister and... She said, yeah, he's traveling. And I just figured, okay, well, and, you know, I told her, well, I think we're going to be on TV. So, you know, watch it and tell dad if you get a hold of him. And so we did, I don't know, 30 kilometers or something before we came down the Champs-Élysées. And then we did a couple laps around the Champs-Élysées. And when I went by the start-finish line, I heard somebody yell, go, Marianne Martin. And um, came around again and saw that it was him and just, you know, was thrilled beyond. But he had quite a challenge getting over there because there was a, a pilot strike in England and his connection was through England and they he wasn't going to be able to get to France to see the finish. And he he went up to somebody and he started crying and he said, my daughter's going to win the Tour de France. And um, they got him on a flight. So he had quite the adventure too. Wow. 
Wow, what a story, what a memory. Did, did it feel yeah. like you were at the, the vanguard of something? Because it was the first, you know, the first Tour de France. I mean, I know there's this dispute about the fact there was a race uh, in Normandy, I think it was in, in the 50s, but this was the first Tour de France. You know, I don't remember that thinking, but I'm sure it was part of my thinking. I mean, I do remember when there was going to be a women's, and right away I wanted to do it, and I did also feel like, this is the first one, you know, I want to break ground. I want to be part of the first, the first foray into the tour. Even the things that weren't perfect made it more of an adventure. And that's how we looked at it or how I looked at it. So it wasn't like, okay, things weren't quite together because it was first. And, you know, this wasn't quite organized. It it didn't matter. It was just an amazing adventure. And what do you remember about Paris and the, and because the, you know there was a podium presentation and then it, I think there was a was there a party afterwards? Yes, there was a podium presentation and then that evening you know the women had our party and then the top three of us were selected to get to go to the men's party at a cabaret somewhere and we walk in and um, I I don't know if it was the owner of the cabaret that came up to me and said, you know, blah, 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 Jane Seymour it was Laurent Fignon's date for that night. And he, and I, I didn't know who Jane Seymour was. I, I didn't watch TV. You know, I didn't, I didn't know who movie stars were. And um, so anyway, I ended up sitting next to her. And then Fignon, of course, was right there. And Vincent Bertot was right there. And uh, it was a completely bizarre night, you know, um, some of the guys got out of their, got into these co- costumes. Some of the racers, you know, like Vincent Bartow and a couple of the others, got into these funny, weird costumes and they were up on stage being part of the whole event. <laughs> it, was, it was completely bizarre. And then the show was something about nights and so castles and castles exploding and pieces of the castle came rolling down the table, breaking wine glasses everywhere. And and then at the end, Fignot and I were invited to be up on stage and they made the announcement stuff and they had this big, huge bottle of champagne and they cut the top off with an axe and, you know, uh, Fignot's drinking it and then he hands it to me and then I'm drinking it and both of us cut our mouth because they really did cut it off with an ass. Wow. And so it wasn't <laughs> like, a, like that would never happen. But we looked at each other. We were both of our mouths were bleeding inside. And, we're just, you know, even it was it was the most bizarre thing. It was just <laughs> completely crazy. But but it was fun. And Jane Seymour speaks a million languages. So she interpreted for me and Fignon. So we were able to talk that evening and you could tell he didn't quite approve of women racing, but he was very, uh, he was a wonderful, he was wonderful to talk to that night. Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, it, it is the cliche question, unfortunately, but what were the attitudes at the time? Because lots of people, you know, turned their noses up at the the idea that women could do an event like the Tour de France, didn't they? I, evidently. Now, I wasn't aware of that. And, whether I just ignored it or I didn't hear it other than when I heard that the French didn't think we would finish. I, I never heard that from anyone in America until, you know, I kind of realized the team was put together with a more of an endurance people in mind, but I, I didn't have that feeling. So and that's probably good because I just went forward knowing we were we were killing it. And in terms of what happened afterwards, I mean, um, w- one question I don't know the answer to is: um, Did you ride it again? I didn't ride it again. So the next year, in the spring, I was selected to do the spring race series in Europe, which was great, except that it rained almost every day. And I ended up getting pretty sick. So I came home and had some kind of a bug that 
I couldn't shake, but I kept racing, which is probably really stupid. And then I raced in the Coors Classic, which was a strong eight-day race here in Colorado. And it just it just put me down. Like my body quit recovering, and I what I couldn't I wasn't strong enough to do the tour at that point. So I. Um, I didn't, I didn't do it the next year. And then I ended up retiring because still my body wouldn't recover. And, you know, as I said, I took my training as a science and I could tell from my pulse differential that I wasn't recovering and I could never get completely rested to do, to be strong. And I, it, I just couldn't get past that. And doctors didn't know what it was. They said it was stress, whatever. So I quit racing then. And so, I mean, the Tour Feminin carried on, didn't it? There was, uh, there was uh, the, the epic battles between Jenny Longo and Maria Cannings, and, and then the Tour Feminin came to, uh, to a halt. And there's been this clamour, uh, certainly in recent years, for a Tour de France for women. And I wonder what you make of um, the Tour de France fam, which will be held uh, this summer, after well it, it basically takes over from the men's tour de france and and uh extends the cycling summer in france by another week doesn't it they're, they're going from paris to la planche de belle a climb which i would imagine you probably would have liked oh you're right i mean that would have well i have to say even though i didn't finish first in the champs-elysees finishing on the champs-elysees was amazing and you're right i I would have excelled had our finish been there and, and, you know, probably won the last stage. So it's a toss-up of which would have been more exciting. But to be racing on the Champs-Élysées, to come around that corner and see that without a single car on it, it, it was breathtaking. And, and, and like I said, I didn't see anything the whole race, but you see that and it, was, it just gave me chills, and it still does, to see that beautiful boulevard with lined with people with not a single car on it so so that's a toss-up i don't know how to answer that and what do you think about this year's race i mean it's uh it's been a long time in coming back i know there have been races that have been considered as the the women's equivalent of the tour de france but to have um the tour de france fam this year what are your thoughts about that i i am so excited i am just beside myself excited it's it's going to be so great for women's racing everywhere i mean across the world because to have something to aspire to like this adds so much more depth and 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 it's just going to bring that strength to the sport which we really need and we really do need more races and more exposure to women's cycling here but it's such an amazing sport for women. And so to finally have a Tour de France femme, it, it's, I'm so excited. I can't even tell you. It's beyond me. And just lastly, I mean, how do you look back on 1984? I mean, I guess you're fairly in demand because, you know, people can't help but draw the parallel between that race and the one that's taking place this summer. Right. It's it's actually been really exciting uh, because to be a part of it, it brings it back up in me, you know, like in my daily life, I, I most of my friends, I mean, a lot of my friends don't even know that I was a cyclist. It's not something that comes up if I meet somebody. It's not really a part of my daily life. So to have this coming up again and being involved in to the extent that you know, people are interviewing me and learning about what it was then and how it is now. It's, that's been wonderful. And I, I'm involved with one of the teams, the human powered health team. And which is fabulous for me because I'm so into health. I mean, that's how I got into cycling. And I think cycling is such a great way to stay healthy and strong. And anything that's going to help women in cycling, to me, is it's just best. Well, Lizzie, what did you make of that interview with Marianne Martin, the winner of the first Tour Feminin in 1984? 
It's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? And I think the thing that strikes me most is really just how tough these women were riding around on, you know, 23 cogs at the back with with 40 or 42 at the front and it's absolutely mind-blowing getting up some of these mountains with with that kind of gearing let alone without the level of support that we have today be it people by the side of the road to give you water ice we've seen the searing temperatures that they have in this time of year in France and it is just mind-blowing what these athletes went through all those years ago and still made it to the finish and yeah just phenomenal riding I mean, it was a real kind of watershed moment for women's cycling, wasn't it? Because 1984 was also the first year that there was a women's road race at the Olympic Games, um, which was won by an American rider, Connie Carpenter, uh, who later married Davis Finney, and their son, Taylor Finney, rode the Tour de France. I mean, uh, sort of American cycling royalty there. Um, but a big summer, the first edition of the Tour de France and a road race for women in Los Angeles at the Olympics. Uh, but it was really interesting you know, hearing from Marianne that, that basically as soon as she heard it, that there was going to be a Tour de France for women, she wanted to ride it and it took precedence over trying to qualify for the Olympics. It's interesting, isn't it? And I feel like that watershed moment that we had back then is is replicated with what we're going to be having this year in 2022. I think this Tour de France is going to be the first time so many, many people, women, children, will have seen women cycling on the television. And this Tour de France will enable us to reach out to such a wider audience that in 10, 20 years time, we're really going to begin to see the effect of that. What did you make of the sort of the rivalry within the American team and uh, the fact that the the sports director or director sportif was kind of, you know, lined up for them? There was no um, relationship between them. They didn't know who he was. He was just, uh, I guess, driving the car. Uh, so they didn't really have any sports direction. They were uh, just a kind of a, a, a group of riders put together. And, um, you know, they had to kind of work out not only a tactical approach, but also work out how to work together and kind of iron out some of those uh, inter-team rivalries. It's fascinating. And I think it's just the same as it is now that at the end of the day, you can you might have a leader, but the legs will speak for themselves. If you get to the climb and one rider is so much stronger, no matter if another rider was supposed to be the leader, then once it comes to those really tough climbs, the legs are going to to speak and you cannot hide. You cannot hide in the climbs in the Alps and you cannot hide on La Super Planche de Belfi where this year's Tour de France Femme is going to be finishing. The fact that we have today the La Tour de France Femme, the biggest race in the world on the biggest stage is in huge part thanks to Le Tour Antier, which was a pressure group created by Mariana Voss, Emma Pooley, Chrissy Wellington and Catherine Bertin in order to campaign for a women's Tour de France. They successfully persuaded the organisers to start with the, the La Course one day race in 2014, which was held on the Champs-Élysées. And the idea between the pressure group and the organisers was that each year the race would add a day. That didn't really happen. We had one day, one day, two day, one day. And now finally, the pressure from across the whole of women's cycling and across the supporters of women's cycling, the viewers of cycling as a whole, the pressure has become so great that the organisers had to say, yes, let's do it. Um, and not only did they have to say, let's do it, it was the time to do it. And there is the appetite now. There is the media out there for women's cycling. And it's just so amazing to see, to hear Marianne Martin speak and to think really quite how far women's cycling has come between 1984 and 2022. Yeah, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the Tour Feminin first time round in the 80s. And uh, well... By 1986, there was nightly coverage of the men's Tour de France on British television, but you didn't see anything of the women's race. You might see a, a snippet on the final day, uh, just wrapping up that Jenny Longo had won, um, because this was also an era where there was this real battle between Maria Cannins of Italy and Jenny Longo of France. Uh, they shared between them five titles between 1985 and 1989. And uh, it was a, a real battle. And it was a battle between the two of them that should have captured the imagination. But in a funny way, the Tour Feminin taking place on the same day as the Men's Tour de France in this kind of support slot 
meant that it was quite easy to ignore, I suspect. I mean, I wasn't working as a journalist then, but I can imagine that, you know, it was a kind of a, a, a curiosity, um, but it didn't draw enough attention away from the men's race. And I do have a sympathy for journalists working on the race even now. It's very hard to be in two places at once. It's very hard to tell two stories at the same time. And I remember having a debate with Orla Chenoui about this um, at the Tour de France many years ago. And, and, and uh, um, I think that the fact that the Tour de France fam takes place after the Tour de France and capitalises on the three-week journey that the, the men have been on and basically sweeps people along. And there's another full week of racing. Yes, it could be longer. And perhaps in years to come, it will be longer and the Tour de France fam will extend uh, and make the challenge even tougher. But I think that um, the fact that it will have the, the full glare of the spotlight for its entire duration, um, I think that's the, that's the thing that I think will mean that the event captures the imagination. And we've all felt that that hole that you feel after the Tour de France mm. finishes and you think, what on earth am I going to do on a Tuesday afternoon <laughs> when I just want to be watching the bike racing and feeling that excitement of this incredible race, uh, seeing seeing the energy of the crowds and the spectators. And now we have, we have something to fill that hole and to continue with that appetite for cycling. And those people that have really bought into the Tour de France that perhaps aren't cycling fans usually, they will then come straight over to the women's race and then we will have new women cycling fans which is really a key to making this race successful for the future well to bring the whole story full circle i gather that marianne martin will be in paris for the start of the tour de france fam and uh hopefully the organizers have got something planned because in so many ways she was a pioneer and um well as i mentioned in my chat with marianne um richard moore wrote a really great chapter about the 1984 Tour Femina and Marianne Martin for a book called The Cycling Anthology, which I uh, put together a few years ago. Um, and that gives a lot of detail about some of the attitudes um, that existed at the time. And, uh, well, Marianne touched on some of that. Um, but in, in that sense, it does feel like um, the story has evolved on a bit. And certainly from my point of view, to know that Marianne will be in Paris for the start of the Tour de France fam and hearing her excitement that this generation of riders are going to get a chance to ride the tour. Um, I think that's the, that's the perfect way to kick off the race. And could it be from one Marianne to another Marianne? If we saw Marianne Martin in the yellow jersey in 1984, rounding that out, could Marianne Voss be the first yellow jersey wearer in the 2022 Tour de Well, as you know, Lizzie, I don't indulge in such speculation, but why not? <laughs> why not indeed? The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.